Good morning. If you're not already there, please turn to Genesis chapter 27. So last week we began this chapter where Isaac was planning to bless Esau. And then we saw how, of course, that blessing was stolen and Rebecca and Jacob were managed to were able to deceive Isaac and and um, stole that blessing. And the way we saw it was that this this narrative is in four scenes. The first scene was where Isaac talked to Esau and he told him about his his plan to bless him, told him to go and hunt game and bring that to him and makes every food for him. That way he could eat it. And after he ate it, he would he would bless Esau. And then the next scene was where since Rebecca overheard the conversation, she told Jacob about her plan to deceive his father. And then in the third scene, he he uh, he succeeded in deceiving his father. And then now we get to the fourth scene where Esau has returned. He was uh, successful in hunting for game in a timely manner. Uh, and I say timely because Isaac had told Jacob, how is it that you got here so quick? So we'll see that Esau got there right after Jacob left. So um, he did it in a timely manner and, and he brought the food and he's ready to receive his his blessing. And we're just going to see where he is in utter shock that things aren't going to go as what was planned. He's not going to receive the, the promised blessing that his father gave to him. This would be the fourth scene in this narrative. So let's look at Genesis 27. I'm going to read verses 30 through 40. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that, you're, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
So according to verse 30 here, at the beginning of our text, we see that Esau arrived as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father. So these two brothers could have passed each other as Esau was on his way in and as Jacob was on his way out. As I mentioned, Esau had successfully hunted and killed the the game and made savory food. He's coming in happy, excited to receive the blessing. I'm sure he he heard about the fact that Rebecca heard that his brother Jacob was to be blessed instead of him. And now he's, he's thinking he's going to get the blessing and he's he's coming and he comes to his father and he tells him, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. And now Isaac is confused. He's confused because he thought he had just finished eating the, the food and, and blessing Esau. And, and there in verse 32, Isaac tells him, who are you? Esau says, I'm, I'm, I'm your firstborn. I'm Esau. And this moment right, this moment right here, I think was, was where Isaac realized that the reason why he was so so suspicious beforehand was because he was deceived. This was where he realized this is really Esau's voice. This is this is really my son Esau, and what happened before was was not. And we see it. We see it there in verse thirty three. There at the beginning of verse thirty three, it says, "Then Isaac trembled exceedingly." I mean, he's actually physically trembling. Something happened here, and why he's trembling? As it says, he trembled exceedingly. This wasn't just the father realizing that his ambitious son just deceived him. This isn't Isaac just being angry at Jacob for deceiving him. This isn't just just a a, a thing between a father and a son. He's trembling because he's realizing that even though, yes, he's realizing that he was deceived, he's realizing that God was behind it. And he's he's realizing that what Rebecca said from the beginning, that God had told him, told her that the older would serve the younger that Jacob was going to be the blessed one, even though this whole time Isaac was against God's will, he knew he was against God's will. His conscience was eating him up, but he persisted in doing what he was doing because he favored he favored Esau. He favored his his firstborn. So he's in a place of trembling right here. As he was ignoring God's will for so long, he's realizing that God's will was done, even though he wasn't Compliant with God's will. So this trembling is really a trembling of, of shock and, and of fear. That's, that's why he saw it. This is the beginning of Isaac's repentance. I'll say it like that. The beginning of Isaac's repentance, even though his son Esau didn't even see that. Even though Esau didn't realize that God was involved in this. All Esau could see was, my brother has tricked me again. My brother has messed with me again. In verse 34, it says, When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. This is the the, the lowest place emotionally that we would ever see Esau. Esau was the type of person that it looked like everything was okay. When he came in from from his hunting and he was tired and and, and he said he wanted wanted some of of, um, Jacob's stew, Jacob said, well, trade me for the birthright. Sell me your birthright. His response was, do you remember his response? What what good is the birthright to me? I want to eat. He showed no concern. He showed no care for what was going on. 
But he did care. He did care. He did realize what was going on, even though he acted like everything was fine. He was the type of person who acted like everything was okay when it wasn't. Everything was alright, everything was fine, even though inside he was upset, even though inside he, he didn't like how things were going, but he was too prideful to just mention it. He was too prideful to just say, things are not well, things are not good, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the way my brothers treated me. He was too prideful to go there, he just acted like everything was okay, and we can see that because of this reaction that he gives to his father. It says he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. You know, if you're just reading through this text, you, you could think like, well, is this an overreaction? Is he exaggerating? This doesn't sound right. What, what's going on here? Well, what's, what's going on with Esau is this isn't an overreaction. He's not exaggerating here. This is a man who suppressed his feelings for so long, acted like everything was okay and things were not okay. From the beginning, his brother had been seeking to take advantage of him. We remember the text, what it said. When they were in the womb, there was a struggling going on. And then when they're born, both of the twin brothers are there, and, and, and um, Esau is the firstborn, yet Jacob is, is grasping for, for his big brother's heel. So they named him Heel Grabber. And then he, he gets deceived, he gets tricked by, by Jacob, and, and the, the blessing is, or the birthright is taken away from him. And then now, the, the blessing is taken away from him. So this, this is not an overreaction. He had been suppressing the fact that his brother had been offending him for so long and, and it, it just, he couldn't hold it in anymore. He's just tired of it. And then we can add to that that his, his mother chose or favored his brother Jacob over him. He's dealing with bitterness. Esau is dealing with bitterness. And, and the way it is with bitter people is they're hypersens- hypersensitive to, to anything that's going against their way. They'll see when, when there's an, an offense. They'll see when people are, are wronging them. So Esau knew that his mother had favored his brother over him. And this was a difficult thing for him. Esau is dealing with bitterness. And we can think, well, what is bitterness? What is bitterness? Uh, a, a brother defined bitterness as Harboring unforgiveness or having a spirit of unforgiveness. And we can become bitter when we're continually, continually hurt and we, we, we believe that we're being treated unfairly. We can grow in bitterness. And we continue in that bitterness when we replay the offense in our mind over and over again. Rather than immediately dismissing it, forgetting about it, we continue to replay that offense. We continue to think about those previous conversations. We probably think about how we could have said something better or how we could have defended ourselves better. But it's not just uh, where our emotions aren't involved in it. As we're replaying the offense, we're just getting angrier and angrier and more and more bitter and more and more offended. And, and, and we're just viewing that person in a worse and worse way. And there is no forgiveness there. That we're just magnifying our heart, our hurt. We're not thinking in about our own sin. We're just thinking about how we were sinned against. And we're increasing in this bitterness. And that's what Esau was dealing with. Remember when Cain killed his brother Abel? Well, the scriptures say that he was angry and he was bitter against his brother. Um, Abel didn't commit any kind of sin against him. The offense was all in Cain's mind, but it was because of that 
bitterness that he had and that anger that he had and he would not forgive and he would not receive God's forgiveness. He, he resisted God's will in his life. So what did he do? He ended up killing his brother. We can see how bitterness affected two, uh, two believers in the Old Testament, Naomi and, ha- and Hannah. We're not told about how they were tempted to unforgiveness or if they were tempted to unforgiveness. We're not told if they were, um, if, if, if they were being hardened against God against God or against God's will there. But we are told about their struggle with bitterness. We are told about their deep hurt because of the trials that they went through, which looks like what Esau was going through, which looked a lot like Esau's deep hurt. About Naomi, there was a, a famine in Bethlehem, and it drove Naomi and her husband Elimelech to the country of Moab. And there when they were in Moab, of course, her husband died. And then her her sons married two wives, and then they eventually died as well. So she lost her husband. She lost her, her two sons. And then she eventually returned to Bethlehem. And when she talked to the ladies there in Bethlehem, she told them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She said, call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitterness. Call me Mara for the, Alm- um, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. She said, the Almighty has afflicted me. So her bitterness was, was, was so difficult for her to deal with, she wanted her name to even be changed. She was dealing with bitterness so much that she wanted everyone else around her to also call her by the name Bitter, Bitter One. The way she saw things, the way she saw the bitterness she was dealing with, she wanted everyone around her to agree with her that yes, this is a woman who is bitter, who is dealt with very bitterly. This is a woman who's who's just dealing with difficulty, and and she was, she was. She lost her husband. She lost her her sons, those closest to her. She told her daughter-in-laws to to go back. Of course, we know that Ruth followed her, but she was confronted with this misery and this bitterness. The other the other woman is Hannah. She was one of two wives of Elkanah. The other wife of Elkanah, Penina, she had children, but Hannah couldn't. And the scriptures tell us that Penina would, would torment her, would provoke her. It says that they, that she provoked her severe, severely to make her miserable. First Samuel chapter one and verse 10 says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and that she wept in anguish. So this was difficult for her. She wanted children while her, the, the one that was competing with her. There's that competition again, causing this bitterness, kept having children and, and was not nice to her about it, was not peaceable about it, kept provoking her. Again, this bitterness is seen as a deep condition of the soul. It's overwhelming. It's, it, it, it just consumes the person's mind. It, it says she was in deep anguish. These women, in their bitterness, struggling with this, where, where we see things about them saying empty, they were empty, they were afflicted, miserable, and in, in anguish. But they didn't stay bitter. They didn't stay in that condition of bitterness like Cain did, like Esau did. They believed in the Lord. We don't read about their hearts being hardened to the Lord. We don't read about them being in unforgiveness, even though they went through this great 
deep trials, and Christians will go through trials. We know that. The longer you walk with the Lord, you will see that you go through trials. Jesus said in John 16 and 33 that in this world we will have tribulation. But Jesus promised us that he would be with us, and because he's with us, we could have peace. Even through that tribulation, that's a profound thing. Christ is greater than the world, and he's greater than the trials that come against us. To where we could say, I can have peace and I can experience this peace. And yes, I believe in what Jesus Christ has told me because he's with me, even through the trials. And we think about this bitterness as we look at it. It is a condition of the soul. It's not outward, it's inward. It's in the mind, it's in the heart. It's something that's so deep, it's so strong. We see Esau who seemed like everything was fine with him. Everything was always okay with Esau. He's crying out. He just held it in, held it in, stuffed it in until he just cried out to his father. And his father was the one that he was closest to. That was his comfort zone. Even though everything was difficult out there, with, with even with, with his own family, right? His, his mom who didn't favor him. His father was the one who always said what he wanted to hear. Who always stroked his ego. So to hear this bad news there with his father, th- this was it. And we, we see what bitterness is. How difficult bitterness is to deal with. It's not something that can be dealt with on the outside, even though people may act like it can be. Even though people may act like it's not a big deal. Yeah, we all go through trials. It's okay. I'm all right. I'll make it. When really inside, it's it's too much for us to deal with. Well, these two sisters, these two believers, Hannah and Naomi, They weren't bitter against the Lord. And in fact, we see where Hannah went to the Lord. She took her bitterness to the Lord there in 1 Samuel um, chapter 1, verse 10. She was in bitterness and and, in soul, bitterness of soul. And what did she do? She prayed to the Lord. She took her bitterness to the Lord, brought her tears, her weeping, her misery to God. She didn't stay bitter. She was never, she didn't get hardened to the Lord. Because she brought her trial to the Lord. Even Naomi. You continue reading through Ruth. It's not a big book. Four chapters long. Even Naomi. She she was able to to have another granddaughter. And and how she dealt with the trials that she went through. And and the bitterness that that she struggled with. That she faced. Losing her husband. Her sons. Was that she looked at the blessings of the Lord. And she never got back what she had lost. In this life, she never got back what she had lost, but she was able to look at what God was continuing to do in her life as as a daughter of God. And and because of that, she was able to come out from that bitterness. Look at she was able to look at the blessings of God in her life. Pastor Kyle had uh, written an article on bitterness. And in that article, it's a good short article to read. And there is five questions that we can look at and we can examine ourselves through those five questions that are that are in there about bitterness. Examine ourselves to see if we may be struggling with this, because sometimes people who are struggling with bitterness will think that they're not or they'll think that it's not that bad, that they can cope with it. So here are the five questions. Is there anyone in particular that you think about regularly with ill thoughts? Is there anyone that you try to avoid? When certain persons come to your mind or are brought up in a conversation, 
Do you get a bitter feeling inside? Do you find yourself always viewing certain persons in a bad light with negative feelings? Are you finding yourself resorting to sinful pleasures to cover up sour feelings stirred up within you? Then it says, note the connection between the root of bitterness and fornication in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. So Naomi and Hannah were able to get through these bitter trials that they went through because of their trust in the Lord. And the Lord helped to bring them out of that pain and bitterness that they went through. I'm sure never a complete healing in this life. Those of us who have lost loved ones, we can we can understand that. But to a place to where the bitterness isn't always right there in front of your face, to where that's to where you want everyone to stop calling you Naomi and start calling you Mara. So I would say, if you're tempted to bitterness, be sure that you're not harboring unforgiveness. If you are, confess your sin to the Lord, maybe confess your sin to the other brother or sister that you're struggling with to the other person. Stop dwelling on the offense. When it comes back to you and you're thinking about how you're replaying it in your mind, how you could have done it better, put it out of your mind. You know, how great an offense is, we can understand if the person is struggling with it, but as months pass, as six months pass, one year, two years pass, if the person is still struggling with that hurt, with that pain, well, we could we could say, well, that looks like bitterness. Especially when it's a believer. And the believer has the joy of the Lord. The believer has the Holy Spirit. Also, look at the the love and the goodness that God has shown to you and and see those blessings that God has done in your life currently and that will help us to deal with the pains of the past in this life. Look at the blessings. Bitterness doesn't want to look at those blessings. Bitterness just wants to look at the, that, that loss. It wants to focus upon that hurt while there's all these other blessings around you. And as I said, through time, with the help of the Spirit of God, with the Scriptures and maybe godly counsel from other brothers and sisters, we can come out from these times of severe trials and come to a place where we could say that we're experiencing God's healing. All Christians will face trials. And some, of course, face greater trials than others. And that's why we need to be prepared, spiritually prepared, mentally, emotionally prepared for those times of trials. If you're not going through a trial right now, well, trust in God. Continue to grow in the scriptures. You don't want to go through a trial when you're Heart is not right with the Lord. Be ready for the times of trials. Esau's problem was he wasn't a believer. He didn't trust in the Lord. And when he was going through this bitterness in his heart that was that he was dealing with, he was just packing it in. He wasn't dealing with it. He wasn't trusting in God. He wasn't taking his pain and his hurt to the Lord. And he got to a place where he wanted to kill his brother. Like Cain. But Cain went through what he wanted to do. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a passage in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17 that talks about, about Esau. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel 
of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Someone can read this passage here in Hebrews and not be familiar with the account in in Genesis, and they can read this and they can think, well, this is Esau wanting to be saved. This is Esau wanting to be saved and going to the Lord for salvation, but not finding any place in his heart for any kind of gospel repentance. But knowing the account in Hebrews and look, I'm sorry, in Genesis and, and looking at the account in Genesis, we see that this is the account that we looked at where the birthright was stolen from him and the account that we're dealing with in this chapter where he wanted his father's blessing. This isn't referring to Esau wanting to be saved. We don't see anything in Esau's life of him praying, trusting in the Lord, believing in the promises. He wants this blessing right here, but he's not thinking because he wants the association that it gives him with a blessing, with it being a blessing from the Lord. He showed that with the birthright. He knew that the birthright included not just the double portion and not just physical material blessings. The birthright in, in, included being a priest, being, being a, a spiritual leader over your home. And he, he rejected that. He did, and he knew what he was doing in rejecting that and not wanting that. He didn't want anything to do with the Lord. He wasn't concerned with that. He was looking at everything on a carnal level. What Esau wanted, what hurt Esau so bad, he wasn't that he wasn't going to receive a blessing from God, from the Lord. What he was so hurt about was he wasn't receiving the blessing from his father. That's what he wanted. He didn't want a blessing from God in heaven. He wanted a a blessing from his father, from Isaac. So this is a that, that account there in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, and comparing it with the account here in Genesis 27, 34 and 38, this rejection and tears wasn't towards God. It wasn't of, of gospel repentance for salvation. It, it, was, it was tears before his father, his earthly father. He was a man who he favored, favored his father. His father favored him. He loved his father. And he was just so grieved. He was just so hurt that his brother came in between that that he had with his father again. He wasn't seeking a blessing from the Lord. He was seeking a, a blessing from his father. And, and, and we see that he always wanted to please his father. We'll see that in the next chapter. He went off and married his third wife because he realized that his first two wives were a grief to his mother and his father. So what did he do? He went and he, he got a third wife. And he got a third wife from his father's side of the family, from the descendants of Ishmael. Of course, he messed that up again because Ishmael was the one who was rejected by the Lord. But he's trying to please his father. And this response that Esau has, it's such a great response. Great as in not good, but great as an extreme. An extreme response that Esau has to his father. This grief this agony, this crying out, will you bless me? This response kind of shook up Isaac. And, and Isaac's response to, to, um, to Esau was not good. Look at verse 35 here in our text. Genesis 27, verse 35. Look at what he said to Esau. What he said to Esau right here put his other son, put Jacob in, in danger. Isaac told Esau, your brother came with this seed and has taken away your blessing. In, in an effort to remove any offense against 
Esau from himself as, as a father, he pointed to his brother. Of course, he, he knew his brother did it, but he, he had to say that. We can wonder, did he realize what kind of day? Did he realize that his son was now plotting to kill his brother? He was so hurt by him. This was a, the last and final thing that he did. And then he says, your brother? Of course, it was his brother, but he's trying. To, he's a father who, who always wants his son happy with him. He didn't. He didn't tell him about the sovereignty of God. He didn't remind him about the promise that was made to to their mom by God that the that Esau would serve Jacob rather than the other way around. He didn't tell him. Look, the the, the Lord's in this, and and we both have been doing wrong. He didn't. He didn't try to point him to the Lord in this. He just pointed him to. To Jacob, to the offense, again, he, he blamed the brother. He didn't speak to him on bitterness. He didn't speak to him on unforgiveness. He, he's not trying to deal with his heart and deal with his soul in, in a right manner. Again, we see this father and son favoritism going on between Isaac and Esau. And then we see here that Esau is just being persistent. He wants some kind of blessing. And in verse 34, he said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. Again, in verse 36, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And then again, in verse 38, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. He had nothing else he could say to his father. This is, this is a very low state for Esau. He's just begging his father for the blessing. He's not trying to convince him in any way. He's begging. This, this is a, a young man. An adult son begging for this blessing. So his father gave him one. Isaac told Esau, it says, Then Isaac, his father answered him and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness or the the fertility of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. He said, by your sword you shall live. He's not going to trust in the Lord. He's going to trust in carnal means. By the sword he will trust in and by the sword he will live. There is no mention of what he said the first time when he thought he was blessing Esau, but he was blessing Jacob. No mention where he said, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you, like he said to Jacob. And Isaac couldn't change the fact that Esau would serve Jacob. He couldn't, he couldn't reverse that. So no mention of that. But he did say, it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. That We see that happen in 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. That's where his descendants, the descendants of Esau, revolted against Judah. So the way I see this, when, when Isaac trembled, when we, see the, when, when we read this, that there is this trembling in, 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 in Isaac, this is the beginning of Isaac's repentance. What Rebecca and, and Jacob did in deceiving Isaac, God used that to bring about repentance in Isaac because his heart was for Esau, against God's will. Look again at the text there in verse 33. Verse 33, it says, Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who, where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. That final statement right there. He shall be blessed. This is a a disobedient child of God acknowledging to God's will, acquiescing to what God is doing. 
Even though he wasn't on board with it before, he's acknowledging God is going to do what God is going to do because God is sovereign. God is fully in control and I'm not. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Even before the the son of his, who's, who's just having a hard time receiving this. This is Isaac's, the beginning of his repentance. And then as we're going to look at the next chapter, if you go ahead and, and read the, the next chapter, you can see where he's, where he and Rebecca send him over to Paden Aram to find a wife for him. He blesses him again. And this time he gives him the blessing that he should have given him, given him in the first place. The blessing that went to Abraham and the blessing that God gave to Isaac and now the blessing that Isaac is giving to Jacob. And he blesses him. His heart is right now with the Lord. He's no longer showing favoritism in a sense of where he's no longer rejecting God's will. He's now aligning himself with God's will and God's will in his life. And what caused his repentance wasn't what what his wife did. It wasn't what Jacob did. It wasn't the deception. It was God using that deception for God's purposes. And that brought about repentance in Isaac. It was the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God in Isaac's life brought about repentance. People say, well, the sovereignty of God, well, that that's a doctrine that teaches fatalism. You know, people believe that. They say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, and it, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't teach fatalism. The sovereignty of God is a teaching that we see throughout the scriptures that God is in control and he doesn't need our cooperation to bring about his purposes. It says in Psalm 115 and verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Even we see in the scriptures when someone flips a coin, even rolling dice, that's according to God's will. They believe that. They cast lots and they, they believe wherever the lot landed, well, that's going to be God's choice in the matter. It says in, in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God even decides what, how the die is going to turn. God, God decides every matter under heaven. He sits in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Everything under heaven, everything on this world, all happens according to God's sovereign purposes. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. People's decisions are all determined by the Lord. We, we decide what we want to do, but it's all determined ultimately by the Lord. It says the king's heart. So we can, we can see from those who, who we think are the most powerful men on earth, what they do, what they say, what happens according to their will, is really what happens according to God's will. And every other person on earth, it's all determined upon, it's all determined by God's will, their decisions, their actions. Even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was determined by God's will. We know that, but it says it in the scriptures. It says it in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. So all of these evil men are, are plotting this crucifixion of Jesus. They're all gathering together to do this. We think, well, this is against God, and, and it's against God's will. What says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. It's all according to God's will. Pontius Pilate, Herod, 
the Gentiles, the people of Israel. God didn't force them to do anything. They did it out of their own volition. But it brought about God's ultimate will. And it happened similarly with Rebecca and Jacob. As they're, as they're committing this sin and deceiving Jacob's father, God is using it for his purpose. So we know that we are responsible. You know, what people say, well, the sovereignty of God teaches fatalism. No, there are consequences for our actions. We know that what we do has consequences. God rewards the good and, and punishes the, the, the bad. There are consequences for our actions. And there were consequences for Isaac's actions. And there were consequences for the actions of all of those in Isaac's family. But this, but understanding this, recognizing the sovereignty of God and, and seeing it is, it, it, it can be a discouragement for those who aren't aligned with God's will. It can be a, a doctrine that people don't like who aren't following in, in the Lord, who don't love God. But for those who love God, for those who are yielded to God, for th- those who love Jesus Christ, this doctrine is an encouragement. It's, it's a comfort to them, knowing that their God who loves them and who is good to them is completely in control. Even when they go through trials, it's according to God's will and it's, it's for God's greater purpose and God loves them. God loves each one of us individually and cares for us. This doctrine is a comfort to us. God couldn't guarantee the promise in Romans 8.28 if he wasn't both good and sovereign at the same time. Romans 8.28, a, a very famous passage in the scriptures. He couldn't guarantee it if he wasn't good and Sovereign at the same time. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who are, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God couldn't say that and God couldn't guarantee that all things work together for his good if he wasn't good and he wasn't entirely sovereign over everything. But this is a comfort to us. Well, let's pray.